This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Coming up on this week's show, Rockstar pirates its own game. A throwback to the CDI Zelda games. And we get the inside story on the legendary PC Zone magazine with Richie Shoemaker. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our great friends at Bitmap Books. Now, you're probably familiar with the legend that is Bob Wakelin. Obviously, the late, great Bob Wakelin. It's incredible artwork, graced much of Ocean Software's output with classics like Head Over Heels, Slap Fight, Batman, Operation Wolf, Chase HQ, and many more as well. And he is just one of the artists that's featured in Bitmap Books' incredible new volume, The Art of the Box. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 396, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Joe Fox. And that is it. That's it. It's a two-man operation this week. (laughs) Ravi's still got the old man flu. It it felt weird. We just recorded the intro then. And uh, yeah, <laughs> we had a real sense of like we miss Ravi. <laughs> like, we do. It felt wrong. I actually got look, I got a recording from Ravi's bedroom earlier. It's not like a microphone in there. He's uh, not doing too well. You can hear a bit of coughing going on still. He's got like sneezing loads. Not doing too well. He's still not very well as you can hear. Get well soon, Ravi. We hope he's back on next week's podcast. But that does make the show must go on, and uh, that is what the podcast is here for to keep you up to date on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming from over the last seven days. And to bring you a legend, a veteran on the podcast in the second half of the show. Basically, if you know this sound. This is a podcast for you. I don't know that sound. This isn't the podcast for me. (laughs) (laughs) Have I finally caught you out, Joe? I wanted to say that was like the cinema THX or whatever it is, but. It's a console that you've got in your collection. You've got a decent collection for this console, actually. Obviously, the head scratchings going. This on. is really going to annoy me. I mean, I'm looking at what my about- Sega Saturn, but I don't think it's Sega Saturn. That is the Japanese Sega Saturn. Is it the Japanese? Well, I wouldn't know that, would I? <laughs> the British one, of course. You know the British one. There we go. These are getting more difficult to do each week, so you must excuse me if I got a bit obscure. But uh, this is a podcast where we talk about all things retro gaming, and Ravi is going to be joining us in the second half of the show, because, you know, without ruining the magic, we did record the interview a few weeks ago, but we have got a really interesting one this week as well. Now, I must admit, I didn't really get into PC gaming until the late 1990s. I mean, I know you were mainly a console kid. I was, you know, pretty much Amiga through and through. Remember that Mega Drives and stuff like that. But then it got into like um, 98, 99. I remember getting my first Windows PC. And that was really when I got into the world of PC gaming. But there was a magazine that was still going very strong then. And in fact, only closed down in, uh, well, I was going to say only, in 2010. Feels like yesterday. Yeah. It was actually a few years ago now. But this was probably the ultimate PC gaming magazine here in the UK. Uh, first issue was launched in April of 1993. This was PC Zone magazine. 
yeah, this was a really fun chat with Richie. But yeah, it was just really cool to kind of hear his side of things, you know, from the, the inside looking out because of uh, PC Zone was owned by Dennis Publishing. And it was yeah. quite funny because of he said we were very the boys in the basement, you know, kind of left to our own devices of just like, you know, just go go get the magazine done. And, you know, it all seemed a bit kind of like, you know, guerrilla rogue in terms of like how they reviewed the games and got their hands on the games and the stories behind that. And it really reminded me of the British sitcom the IT crowd, you know, um, <laughs> and then um, he obviously he worked with Charlie Brooker, um, who you know we had on the show two hundred episodes ago now, who talked about his time at PC Zone, and you know there was quite a lot of a uh, reminiscing there and talking about the uh, Lara Croft Zoo sketch uh, that he yeah. did and stuff like that, and uh, you know just what it was like working for you know these big publishers, but kind of like being a kind of tongue in cheek, on the nose but informative PC magazine ultimately you know, a gaming magazine as well. Um, and then obviously all the other things uh, that Richie has done as well since, you know, PC Zone and also alongside PC Zone, really, really vast career in the gaming industry, really, really fun interview. And he was a really fun guy, really got involved as well. Yeah, and I think PC Zone for me, I mean, I did read a few issues of it back in, uh, probably a bit after its kind of heyday, because by the sounds of this, I mean, you know, it really was at its peak in the, you know, the mid to late 90s. I mean, Charlie Brooker was there um, quite early on, and that was kind of like, um, it did game reviews as well, and also there was uh, the, the Sick Notes and yeah. uh, the Cyber TWATS section that you did it there too. So, I mean, it was a very tongue-in-cheek magazine, and also I think they identified the fact that most of their audience was kind of, you know, lads in the teens or early twenties. Yeah. yeah. And it really appealed to that demographic. Yeah, yeah. We did touch on that. You know, we did touch on we spoke about, you know, the female audience and, you know, what it was like back then and compared to like the audience in the in the industry now and stuff like that. So it was really insightful. Um and then, you know, PC Zone Lives podcast or PC Zone Lives podcast as well. Uh, we we talked about that and what Richie's doing these days. So yeah, really, really fun episode. So was it a magazine that they did before? I think the, the precursor to PC Zone was a magazine called uh, Zero. Oh, right. It was a, a multi-format magazine that covered ST, Amiga, PC consoles as well. I did read a few issues of that back in the very early 90s, like 1991. So it's interesting to kind of hear, you know, the, the legacy of Dennis Publishing kind of going into, you know, the PC gaming mm. sphere. Because, I mean, obviously their timing on that was impeccable, really. You think about starting a PC magazine in 1993, Obviously, we had, you know, Doom came out in that mm. year. You had Quake following up shortly after. So that really felt like, you know, PC gaming just hit the ground running, didn't it? As yeah. It got into the mid-90s. Yeah, 93. So in terms of- such a huge year. So, yeah, it makes sense that they changed to just PC zone then. Yes, yeah, so, and I think as well, I mean, the fact that I've seen a few pictures of Richie and Charlie Brooker, they've actually had a like a PC zone kind of reunion. Yeah. Recently as well. I saw a few pictures of that on Facebook yeah, not long funny, ago. So. Funny, without spoiling it, yeah, funny stories from that as well <laughs> in the interview. Yeah, so... <laughs> If you're a reader of PC Zone magazine back in the day, or you just want to get some insights into kind of what that the magazine industry was like, because I mean, it was so important before we all got connected to the internet and before the days of YouTube and everything. A really interesting chat with former PC Zone employee, Richie Shoemaker. He's coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, before we get into the interview section of the podcast, we'd like to bring up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. And a couple of interesting stories to sink our teeth into this week, Joe, uh, including a new title, well, I say a new title, a classic title that's now been unofficially ported to the Sega Mega Drive. Yeah, this is interesting. So uh, Metal Gear, the original. So not Metal Gear Solid, 
you know, as we know it today, and uh, you know, as as famously for the PS One, uh, probably made it huge, kind of like in the West, or at least in the UK, and maybe for me and you, mm. Dan. Uh, but Metal Gear is currently being unofficially ported to the Mega Drive uh, by our good friend Hoffman. Funny enough, yeah, the yeah. legend that is Hoffman, the legend that is Hoffman, uh, real Hoffman. Um, but famously, Metal Gear came out on the MSX in Japan, and then it was mm. ported to the NES in America. Uh, we did get it in the UK as well; it just wasn't as popular. And uh, then there was a sequel to it. But uh, famously, those those ports are kind of dumbed down versions of it, Western versions of it. They weren't they weren't what the original game was, which plays a lot more like a you know you know espionage kind of game, a lot more like the Metal Gear Solid that we know for the PS One. And what this port is, is it's a port of the MSX version to the Mega Drive slash Genesis. Um, and it's looking pretty good, to say the least. And, you know, I, I don't know when we're going to get this. Um, so, so far, Hoffman's just saying, you know, it's coming along at a rate of knots now. So it's coming along quickly. Lots of little rough edges um, and things to sort out. But it's it's in a playable state already. And he's got mm. it running, you know, on native, on native Mega Drive hardware, which is really cool. Uh, my fear is we will never see the light of day of this because of, you know, Metal Gear's hot at the moment. It's been quiet for a while um, since Metal Gear Phantom Pain, which I think was 2015, 2016. And uh, they famously, um, Konami, you know, parted ways with uh, Hideo Kojima, the, the the creator of Metal Gear. And now, you know, they're remastering Metal Gear Solid 1, 2 and 3, which come out, I want to say next month. And then they, yeah. then they are completely from the ground up remaking Metal Gear Solid 3, Snake Eater with Metal Gear Delta. Metal Gear Solid Delta. So um, I just, I think Konami are going to be hot on this. Um, you know, I hope, hopefully I get, you know, get to play Metal Gear on the Mega Drive, but. I just, what are they normally like Konami? Because then obviously if it's Nintendo, it, it's a no brainer. It's gone straight away. Yeah. Even Sega in more recent years have, have surprised us by yeah. pulling a few fan projects, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, Sega. I'm not sure about Konami. Sega have been cheeky recently. Capcom have always been really good. Capcom have always been really supportive or have been nice when it's happened and, you know, kind yeah, of swept under the carpet, swept you know, under the carpet and, and, attention. Yeah, and, you know, or sent some, you know, they've, 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 there was a Resident Evil 2 remake. I've spoke about it a few times uh, where they actually ended up kind of like saying, change it to a different game and here's some assets to help you make the game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because we are actually making Resident Evil 2. That was about five years ago, but Konami, they, they used to be probably a little bit more like Capcom, you know, kind of sweep it under the carpet. And then, and they kind of got out of gaming. They were just doing the pachinko machines in Japan, you know, after, you know, kind of 2017 to around this year, really. They've not been doing an awful lot. I've heard a lot of people said that Konami now just basically lazy and just kind of churning out. Churning out. You know, kind of, yeah. yeah. Not really, you know, not putting that much effort in. Yeah, there. just reporting Castlevania and, and uh, yeah. Contra games constantly. But obviously Metal Gear Solid Delta is going to be a from the ground up complete, you know, mm. remake. So that's pretty huge, but I just, I don't think they're too bad, but I'm just, I just, I have a feeling about this, you know, with, with Metal Gear being hot at the moment, uh, they, they, they're going to want people playing, you know, what they're putting out. <laughs> um, it's interesting though, because with a game that's got this much legacy and obviously is so loved by retro gaming fans, sometimes when I've got a feeling that they get a lot of bad PR when they take projects like this down that, you know, they're never going to release another game for the Mega Drive. You know, they're never going to port it themselves. And I think it probably does them quite bad in the eyes of the gaming community to destroy fan projects sometimes. Yeah, that is true. And it kind of leaves a sour taste in the fans' yeah. mouths, sometimes a bitter taste, 
sorry, you know, in kind of like the fans' mouths and stuff like that, you know. It's like, I love Nintendo, but it's like, come on, you know, when they do these things, yeah. it does seem a bit, you know, skank. <laughs> yeah, when they're taking down YouTube playthrough yeah. videos and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, like, nine-year-old Timmy's uploaded his Mario Kart laps. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. quarter of a million pound fine, he's in yeah. prison. Yeah, it just seems a bit harsh. But yeah, no, this uh, this uh, port is looking really good. Um, I forgot to mention as well that um, he's inserted the, the Kodak, Kodak kind of like clips, if you will, uh, speeches, talks into the game as well, which were uh, missing in the earlier games, but are present in the later games, which look really awesome as well. And some of the artwork and, you know, coding on that does look fantastic. But yeah, keep your eyes peeled for Hoffman's port of uh, Metal Gear for the Mega Drive. Yeah, there's like a two-minute video that you can watch mm. some of the gameplay so far, and I've got to say, it looks really slick. It looks really um, good for Mega Drive. Yeah, it mentions it's rough around the I don't see any rough edges in this. No, not really, really no. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that's not too far away. It looks they're pretty polished by the looks of this early gameplay. So we'll link that up in our show notes. We want to check out that little trailer. Now, something that um, probably does look a little rough around the edges to most people would be the uh, the infamous Zelda games on the Philips CDI. Now, I'm sure most people in... Uh, you know, into retro gaming, have heard of these games, have not actually played them. You've probably seen YouTube videos about them. They've uh, had quite a bit of coverage over the last decade or so in particular. And these were, of course, the uh, the very short-lived Nintendo game series. We saw uh, Hotel Mario, a couple of Zelda games as well that came out on the, uh, the ill-fated Philips CDI back in the early 90s. Now, of course, this was really at the time when Nintendo... We're looking to release a CD add-on, yeah. a CD drive for the Nintendo, uh, the Super Nintendo. Originally had a bit of a deal with Philips. Obviously, that went to Sony. The PlayStation came out of that. But the deal was with Philips that they allowed them to use some of their IPs mm-hmm. in return for helping them with CD technology. Yeah. Um, and that did mean that we did get a couple of uh, games that are probably quite suited to the CDI's library. Let's put it that way. Yeah. As in, utterly crap. <laughs> Hotel Mario, Link, Faces of Evil, Zelda, Wand of Gamelon. Yeah. What's the other one called? Is it just the adventures? Of- we always forget this. The adventures and this is in the Christmas Zelda. quiz, isn't it? It was on the Christmas yeah, quiz. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's that. Yeah. Um, you know what? Interestingly, on the last Patreon hangout or the one before, I think it was Tommy. Apologies to Tommy if it wasn't you, who actually said one of these is pretty good. Like, it's not as bad yeah. as people think. And I was like, really? I don't know about that. Well, it, it turns out Tommy might not be the only one that thinks that because uh, someone is actually doing um, what is really a bit of a love letter mm. to those uh, generally mostly considered awful Zelda CDI games. And uh, this is a game that's um, it's in works at the moment. It's it's called Azet or Azeti, The Jewel of Faramore. And there's actually quite a bit of legacy from those CDI Zelda games in this new game, isn't there? Yeah, well, this was revealed at PAX West 20, uh, 2023, um, actually about a month ago, but it's only just kind of started doing the rounds you know, in my kind of social circles on social media and stuff the last kind of week. Um, and um, I, you know, initially I actually thought it was just a reskin, you know, yeah. Faces of Evil and Wand of Camelon. <laughs> I just thought it was like, you know, somebody had drawn over them, you know, graphics, the, you know, the graphics, the sprites and put this Arzetti character in there. But um, that isn't the case at all. This is actually a game built completely, you know, from the ground up by a creator whose name is Seth Falcon Falkerson, um, otherwise known as Dopley in the development community. And uh, yeah, this is like an absolute love letter to those games. And um, I guess the only way to describe it is it's got the same gameplay style as Faces of Evil and Wand of Gamelon. 
It's got hand-painted sprites and hand-painted like uh, backgrounds. And it's, looks like I've been doing like deluxe paint or something. On yeah, the, yeah, and then yeah. it's got the <laughs> the uh, I don't want to use the word terrible, but the uh, questionable voice acting, which is obviously very purposeful in this. Um, and you know, when you talk to a shopkeeper, they will come up as a a huge animated character, like on the screen, you know, talking to you and stuff like that. And the gameplay is very similar. And even if you watch the trailer, you will actually see there's a puzzle element. Uh, which is clearly Hotel Mario. Yeah. At one point. Going through well. the doors. Going through the doors, yeah. which I love. But what's really interesting about this game is he's actually managed to track down and get the original voice actors from those Zelda yeah. games. Je- Jeffrey Rath and Bonnie Wilbur, who uh, played the characters in the original <laughs> CDI Zelda games, have returned for this. Yeah, which is just fantastic. Um, there's so many Easter eggs in here. And you know what? <laughs> He sold it to me. Like, I really want to yeah. play this. Like, graphically, I'm like, I really like the look of this. Like, this looks so cheesy and terrible that I really want to play it. Like, it looks good. Like, it's gone past the cheesy and terrible to looking good. And obviously, it plays smoother. You know, you're not going to have to use that awful CDI controller. You know, the graphics are a bit better and everything. You know, you can tell they're more HD and stuff like that. Um, it is going to get a physical release through limited run, of course. Um, and then they are going to be porting it to, I say porting it, it's going to be coming out on the Switch, PS4, PS5, Xbox Series X and uh, Xbox One and Steam. I thought you were going to say it's coming out on the CDI then. I was like, no, <gasps> it's not. It's not coming out. My but, eyes widened then, Joe. I got it, excited. It's, it's funny because the company behind it, you know, who um, Doppley works for, or I guess it's hers, his company, is called CDI, but it's S-E-E-D-Y. As in CD. Yeah, yeah. and then I as in like an eyeball. Uh, which and the introduction, if you watch the trailer, the RZ trailer that's on a YouTube Unlimited Runs channel, you know the uh, the, the one you and Ravi didn't know, the, the CDI intro music that I played last yeah. week? It's actually got that startup, but actually, instead of the CDI logo, there's like an I yeah. with the same music <laughs> over it as well. So, that's yeah, brilliant. nice little attention to details yeah. in there uh, for those uh, you know handful of CDI fans <laughs> out there. There are a couple others left um, in the world. No release date, just 2023. Yeah. It just says coming to Well, mean in the next three months, by the sound. Yeah, obviously. next three now months. Winter, yeah. yeah. Late September. But I mean, it's cool, though, because, I mean, you know, now we're getting into that area of retro where even, like, CDI games have been used as inspiration and been ploughed for inspiration. <laughs> yeah. I think that is quite interesting. Yeah, that is true. What we're going to have in a couple of years, and we've remade everything, are we going to start remaking them again? I guess that is what we're going to do. Yeah. Or are we going to go for the... The Tiger Game Con and the R Zone stuff like that. The ACAN system we were talking about <laughs> yeah. last week. Those eleven games. Yeah, you know, yeah. There could be some pillaging could to be, be done remaking there. them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, it looks very cool to see. And uh, as someone who uh, actually enjoys the CDI for you know the, the nafness that is that platform, I do think it's quite cool to see. So I'll probably be uh, picking this one up as well. No word on pricing yet. I know limited runs sometimes again. It's interesting because some of them are quite expensive sometimes are quite reasonably priced but. yeah I, I tend to i tend to find with limited run I've, I've only got a couple of i have got a couple of their releases um i've got the castlevania collection and the zombies ate my neighbors collection and i tend to find when it's a re-released game you know a classic game and it's yeah. on switch or ps4 or whatever it tends to be pretty reasonable 30 dollars, you know 35 dollars, 30 quid um but when it's like oh we're doing it on a mega drive cart it's usually like $100, $150. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Hopefully it won't be too expensive. And I guess with those re-releases as well, they've got stuff like licensing. They've normally got yeah. to pay as well on top. Yeah, so yeah. hopefully with like an indie game like this, yeah. you know, it might not be that much. But um, yeah, very cool to see. So if you want to check out that trailer, I'll put that in our show notes as well. 
Um, speaking of things I've watched on YouTube, as well as that trailer, I was watching an interesting video from our friend at Modern Vintage Gamer, who uploaded this video the other day, actually, and I've seen this article doing the rounds on a few of the news websites, that Rockstar have basically proven just how important piracy is for game preservation. Now, that's because they've released a version of their classic game, Midnight Club 2, onto Steam recently. Right. But it turns out a few uh, people with uh, quite wily eyes have done a bit of looking into this, and it turns out the version of Midnight Club 2 that's on Steam is actually a cracked version from the piracy group Razor1911, who cracked this game to release onto the internet without any copy protection back in 2023. So basically this means that Rockstar are now selling an old pirated copy of their own game on Steam. This is weird. You know, um, you know when the uh, NES Mini came out in 2017, yeah. I think it was, a friend at work, it might have been 2016, was trying to tell me that some of the ROMs on there were like cracked ROMs, you know, that Nintendo had got off, you know, online. And, and I don't know how much truth there was in that, but obviously there is truth in this because of the, there is evidence of it. People have been posting this on, uh, on Twitter slash X. Uh, I still can't bring myself to call it X. <laughs> still call it Twitter. Um, I used to look for the Twitter app on my phone. I'm like, where did I put it? Ah, there it is. And yeah, you know, the evidence is there. Uh, but it's interesting because you would have thought, like, when this has been, where this has been ported to Steam, would they have not got, Steam not got it from Rockstar? Would have Rockstar not yeah. provided the ROMs? So that just kind of says to me, like, you know, this this is a 2003 cra- cracked uh, mod and it's just like a cracked version of the game. And it's just like, did Rockstar just pull this off the internet because they couldn't be bothered to get their own ROMs or did they not have their own ROMs? Like the story is interesting. Like, yes, it proves the point, you know, like the importance of like piracy and anti-piracy and stuff like that and ROMs and, and everything. But it's just a bit like, did this not come from you? <laughs> yeah. Like- to, to me, there's two reasons this might have happened. Now, first of all, yeah, it could have been they just basically lost it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which seems unlikely to me because, you know, a company like Rockstar that's got a lot of history and I think... You often hear stories of games from like the 70s or early 80s kind of being lost. I'd imagine by like 2000, 2003, you know, it was like companies realised that they, they had enough hard disk space and they'd keep stuff around. It's yeah. worth keeping. I think we all kind of knew that by then. But by the sounds of this, I've got a feeling that there was just that much copy protection and DRM on the original game that they just couldn't be bothered to rip it all out and like basically crack the game themselves. Yeah, maybe. That's a good point. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. So basically, I think they've just done... Exactly what you said then. They probably just got onto Google and basically just typed in, like, you know, Midnight Club 2, Pirate <laughs> Where's Download or something, and then sent it off to Steam. Here you go. Here's the game. Here's the game. Which is, yeah. it's quite brave, though, because, I mean, there is actually a few little posts on Twitter. People have uh, used what's called a hex editor. So that means you can basically look at, like, the file and kind of go through it and look for things that are buried in there. Mm. And it turns out this group, Razor1911, their signature is still in that hex code. So it turns out that, you know, that is the version of the game that they released. But sometimes, I mean, there have been instances where pirates might include their own kind of hidden codes, either hidden away in like the, the hex code or sometimes, you know, I, I've got games from back in the 90s where they were released by pirated group, pirated groups and there was things broken in them. Mm-hmm. You know, basically their changes actually broke stuff in the game. So I'd imagine for Rockstar to release this onto Steam, they must have really done some kind of very thorough checking of it, I'd hope. 
to make sure that everything's kind of legit, nothing else has been changed. Yeah, you would have thought, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the GTA ports that they did last year, like Vice City and San Andreas, yeah, were pretty terrible as well. So, you know, maybe Rockstar have got a bit of a, I don't know, with their, their, their oldies and their ports and stuff, not that much attention to detail, perhaps. Um, but there are some like, cause, I mean, I don't even remember, you remember the game Toki? Yeah. I've got a version of that on the Amiga where the, a piracy group have basically, on the introduction when the uh, the lady gets kidnapped, they've basically removed her bikini top. <laughs> so if you look carefully, there's it's a bit explicit, you know, in terms of a 16-bit Amiga game can be. Uh, but, you know, there is stuff like that the piracy group sometimes did as a bit of a giggle. Yeah. You know, they just kind of modify bits of the game. So I think if uh, it is quite bold just to kind of shove a, a Wares version of the game <laughs> on like Steam yeah. for anyone to download and charge money for. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it, it, it doesn't sit right with me that, it, yeah. you know, I think your explanation of perhaps they couldn't be bothered to crack it themselves is, yeah. is probably the answer. It'd be nice to see if they'd actually kind of like say something on it, but I don't think they will. They're probably not bothered about, you know, midnight. What's it called? Midnight Club 2. Yeah, Midnight Club 2. There we yeah, go. Midnight Club 2. Yeah. I was like, what's it called? Um, they're probably not that bothered about Midnight Club 2, so they probably won't release any sort of official statement. Um, but if I was the guy who was meant to, you know, send this over to Steam, and if it was just a case of he just made a decision <laughs> to yeah. just pull yeah, it himself, wow. yeah. I'd, be, I'd be worried right now about my yeah, job. Someone might be getting a little bit of a bollocking this week at yeah, work, you imagine. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it. Some people have even commented on the tweet as well. Like, you know, if this Razor 1911 group did some of their own code in there, could they kind of sue Rockstar for like infringing their copyright? I wouldn't imagine they'd be brave enough to do that, no, but it is an interesting I point. After so, Rockstar. Uh, yeah, that might be waving a red rag to a bull. Yeah, absolutely. Were. Yeah, probably wouldn't advise that. So uh, interesting to see. Then again, it does prove, you know, the piracy is very important for the, uh, the future preservation of these games. You know, there's mm. a, a case in point there. Now, Command & Conquer 2, red alert. I mean, if we had Ravi on the podcast right now, I'm sure he'd be salivating all over this. I mean, we know he's a big RTS fan. Are you much of a fan of the Command & Conquer series? you play many of those games? You know what? Um, I played Red Alert, Command, Command & Conquer Red Alert for the PS1, which is probably like the worst mm. way to play it, you know, when that came out in like 97, 98. But it's, I, I like RTS games. I was a big fan of uh, Warcraft 2, the Age of Empire games. Absolutely adored them. Um, you know, in the kind of like the Lord of Rings and uh, Star Wars ones, always enjoyed them. Um, but never, it's not that I didn't get into them. I've just not really played them. I've just never really had the mm. opportunity to play the Command and Conquer ones. And I know there's such a rich, like, history with them now. And there's so many of them, you know, Command and Conquer, what's it called, like Tiberium and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not too sure. People, people are probably screaming at me right now. But I know there's so many different, like, offshoots and, you know, with the Red Alert games and stuff like that. So never really given them much of a chance, but this might be my time to uh, to try some of them um, because if they have, mm. uh, somebody has actually got it running, well, Red Alert 2, Man of Conquer Red Alert 2, playing in your browser, in your, <laughs> quite interestingly, and, and playing well by the looks of things as well. Um, no additional plugins or applications yeah. needed. So this means basically, if you get a quiet half an hour at your job at work and you're there in front of your PC... You could just fire up the old uh, Microsoft Edge and load this game up and uh, delve into that. Yeah, so this is uh, being made by, uh, well, I say being made. This is a project by Chrono Divide. And when I was reading this, I was a little bit like, okay, well, how does that work? So it pretty much says that you do need to have, obviously there is, you know, some specs to your computer that you need to have, but they all look pretty minimal. 
uh, to run it because obviously this game came out in 2000. Um, yeah, Core i5, 64-bit operating system, 4 gigabytes of RAM. Yeah. You know, pretty standard these yeah. days. And when I was reading it, it does say like, you know, oh, you need to have um, some of the assets downloaded. Uh, you do have to have the, uh, like, pretty much the game, kind of like a copy of the game on your computer, like a disc right. copy of it. And I was like, what? Like kind of thing. It says like, either copy your own, you know, Command & Conquer Red Alert 2 disc to your computer, or you can download this XE, uh, exe file that we have available here for you <laughs> yeah. on our website. On a different server that's... Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's their website, actually. This is on um, a website called xwis.net. So basically, they've just linked to someone else yeah. who's been brave enough to host the file. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm not going to butcher the instructions too much here, but essentially, you can go on this website, uh, which will all be in the show notes, and you can download the game and then essentially then go on to chronodivide.com and follow these. And it's literally like four steps and then it's playing yeah. in your browser. And yeah. Yeah. It, and it runs perfectly fine. So like you say, if you've got a spare half an hour or even an hour on your lunch break, um, as long as you're not getting caught and blaming me, get, get yourself on Red Alert too. Just remember to bring a USB stick with the game file on there. And, uh, you know, providing that's not locked down on your work yeah, PC. Yeah. So make sure you follow the links correctly. Uh, your IT we're, we're not condoning to do it on your work PC. <laughs> do it in your own time. <laughs> yeah, so it's really cool. Like, I mean, literally all you do is you go on there, the website, you select the folder on like your USB stick or your PC where the Red Alert, Red Alert 2 files are, are located, the original assets, and then you can play them in your web browser. It just kind of, you know, I am wondering kind of if you've got the game already downloaded why wouldn't you just play the original game files? Yeah, <laughs> but, but I think they're the also kind of saying like, you can do it like this, or there's this website. And I think that's just to kind of cover their back, yeah. but they're not condoning that you just go download it off this, <laughs> rip it off this yeah. website. Um, Definitely not affiliated with Electronic Arts. You know, yeah. They do say it's a fan project yeah. and nothing to do with them. So uh, very cool there. I think, you know, the fact that web technology is moving on at such a rate that we can now play, you know, what were AAA games, you know, 20 years ago now mm. doesn't feel that long but yeah you can now just play these in your web browser at work and everything is very cool so uh yeah if you were uh, ever if like joe you've been curious about you know red alert soon never got around to playing it a really simple way to do that now so of course i'll link that up and all the rest of the stories you don't have to google around you don't have to get on facebook or get xing have we got a name for that yet? It's not tweeting anymore, is it? Xing. Xing, Xing. Uh, you don't have to do all that. We save you the effort. We uh, keep an eye on all that and put them in our show notes as well. So you can check them out directly from your phone app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now we're going to get the inside story on the legendary PC Zone magazine with our special guest, Richie Shoemaker. He's coming up on the podcast in just a moment. Now, before we do that, can we take a quick moment to give a massive thank you to this episode's sponsor, and that is our wonderful friends at Shopify. And if you use Shopify, this sound will be like music to your ears. Do you know what that means, Joe? You know what this sound means? Does that mean you're making money? You've just made another sale on Shopify. Now, Shopify is fantastic. And actually, I've mentioned on the show before that um, I used it on a, uh, a friend's website that was selling books a couple of years ago. We set a Shopify account up on there. So it basically took all the, the hassle out of trying to do it yourself. Because before that, he's using WordPress plugins and all that kind of thing. I've been working with a parenting company this week. We're selling T-shirts. Um, I went onto their website 
set up a really simple Shopify site that they can link direct to. Really, Shopify is the commerce platform that is revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. So whatever you're selling, books, t-shirts, anything like that, whether you're selling online or even in person as well, with Shopify, you can successfully grow your business. Now, one thing I love about it is, I mean, you and I, Joe, would be the first to admit, in terms of web technologies, we're not the most clued up guys on things like WordPress and all that kind of thing and trying to do it ourselves, web coding. <laughs> Same here. You know, I don't know much about any of that kind of thing, but actually Shopify does all hard work for you. You don't have to know any of that mm. stuff. So it covers all of your sales channels. That can be your shop-ready point-of-sale system. It can be uh, even your social media platforms too. You can sell across Facebook, Instagram, even TikTok as well. And they've got industry-leading tools to ignite your growth. And it gives you complete control over your entire business and your brand without spending time learning skills in design or coding and that kind of thing. And one thing that's really good as well is they have 24-7 help so that means they've got an extensive course library you can check out as well. And if you need support, they're available 24 hours a day. So they're there to support your success every step of the way, to give you the confidence and the control to take your business to the next level. So if you're selling anything online or in person, it is time to get serious and get Shopify today. And of course, you know us, guys. We always give you the best offers, don't we? So if you want to try out Shopify for yourself, why don't you sign up for a £1 a month trial period of Shopify right now, just for a quid a month. So head to this website, shopify.co.uk forward slash retro hour. So that's shopify.co.uk forward slash retro hour to take your business to the next level today. And of course, I'll put that in our show notes as well. And we thank our good friends at Shopify for their continued support of our show. Now, it is the final weekend of September. How the hell did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) I've been saying to my missus just today how quickly September has gone. It has absolutely flown by. And it is funny because of uh, the last Sunday of September, which is coming up in two days' time, uh, is falling a week before September ends, if that makes sense. Meaning, though, the good news is our patron hangout is just around the corner and has flown by this week yeah. so uh this month so yeah on this sunday on the 24th uh we will be doing our patreon hangout uh now tell us a little bit about that dan look there i got well, this is I got where we first. get it we, <laughs> we get a bunch of retro gaming geeks all together on basically a massive zoom call mm. and we show off our gaming collections our new pickups anyone new that comes onto the podcasts hangout we generally invite them to give us a little uh setup tour i mean it's not compulsory i know some people are not into that but we always like to kind of drool over other people's collections as well don't we yep. i've got to say most of which put ours to shame yeah absolutely it's <laughs> <laughs> my patrons if i'm honest uh there's some people who've just got like dream machines yeah and the people on there with uh you know machines that i've wanted in my collection for years and i'm looking at them thinking oh, i'd love one of those oh, i'm a sam coupe i want one of those um generally joe spends far too much money on ebay yeah that does happen when we're on the hang out yep. yeah, uh, <laughs> someone will mention something Joe will be like a, I need a Nokia 3310 I need an engage check how much, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm going to check those on CX website right now uh, but really it is an excuse just to get together have a bit of a, a giggle essentially isn't it we normally crack open a drink while we do it we do it um, Sunday evening 8pm UK time till 10pm all patrons are welcome to come on uh, it's good for getting advice as well I mean the amount of you know, tips I've got from people that are much cleverer than we are in terms of retro gaming stuff yeah. on our hangout. Um, you know, it's just been incredible. For I want to know how to set up a compact flashcard on something or, you know, whatever drives good for this system or how much RAM can I put in in a Windows 95 PC? Someone on the Patreon 
we'll have the answer to that. So if you'd like to join us for our patrons hangout in September, that is coming up this Sunday evening from 8pm UK time. So join us on Patreon right now. You will get an invite to that this weekend. And of course, all the details to support The Retro Hour and join our wonderful community are on our website right now at theretrohour.com. Okay, next we're going to get the story of the legendary... 90s and noughties gaming magazine PC Zone with this week's special guest Richie Shoemaker is coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast You're listening to the Retro Hour and we're here today with Richie Shoemaker and he was the deputy editor of PC Zone magazine and he's working for MCV Develop at the moment How are you doing Richie? Very good, very good Good to meet you Good to speak to you guys uh, great to have you on, and uh, we're going to start with a question that we ask all of our guests. Uh, what was your first like gaming experience or memory? Yes, I've prepared for this one. Um, my first, um, well, my first gaming machine was this crappy Binatone TV Master Mark VI, which I got for my eighth birthday, and I didn't realise until I was looking up recently this kind of old Magnavox console thing that was a basically offered variations of Pong uh, with a light gun game on the side. Um, but I'm not sure what prompted it because I, I was living in Cyprus at the time and I used to go down to the beach every day after school, which finished at 2 p.m., which was great. And they had a couple of pinball machines in this kebab hut. And if I wasn't swimming in the sea, I was always in there playing pinball. So I don't know why I ended up this machine. Um, it might have been a way for my parents to keep an eye on me, especially as the um, TV wasn't being used for much else because there was only one channel and it was only on for a couple of hours in the evening. Um, but the, probably the big first big gaming experience was... Um, uh, for a lot of like for a lot of people, Space Invaders, uh, which came out I guess a year or so later, and I remember it, it was in a bar that I wasn't allowed in, obviously because I was eight or nine, and I would stand in the doorway and just look through the smoke at this kind of alien glow in the room, and there was that iconic kind of heartbeat sound that was in my memory seemed to kind of shake the earth around me, and it was and it's just like something from another planet, and um, I think I one one day I went in on the excuse that I was looking for my dad. And I just stood there watching it until they kicked me out, basically. And uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> Gamer for life. So uh, was there much of a, a scene? Kind of like, what's the story there with Cyprus? Like, did you kind of grow up there? Were you there for much longer? You know, was there much of an arcade scene as you grew up? No, no, not at all. I mean, um, my dad was in the military. That, that's where I was at. Okay. So, um, I mean, I didn't really live in the UK at all till I was about, mm. till I was 10 or something. So it was a... You know, I didn't know anyone who had games. That that was the only machine I saw was, was Space Invaders. Didn't see any others. Yeah, and that was it really. So it wasn't until we came back to the UK, I think when I was about 10 or 11. And um, and then I, you know, I discovered things like Fairgrounds where, you know, all these arcade machines were. And yeah, it was like, you know, Kid in the Candy Store. So, you know, your Asteroids and your Battle Zones and everything else, Defender. And it's like, you know, it was, it was, this fairground was only there, like, you know, it only come for holidays, didn't it? You know, Easter and Christmas and stuff. And yeah, um, that's, that's something I really look forward to, you know, as a, yeah, as 10 or 11 years old. Well, um, I was wondering which gaming magazines did you read when you were growing up then? And, uh, which ones really stood out for you? All of them, I guess. Um, I, I suppose it, it, if, if it covered the platform I had or wanted, I would read every magazine there was. So, I think before I got my first proper, well, I wouldn't say, well, when I, before I got my first, well, before I got my Spectrum, I guess, I, it used to be C and VG. And, and then as soon as I got my Spectrum, I'd read all the Spectrum, Spectrum mags, all the Sinclair mags, all of them, even the ones that didn't last very long and were just full of crappy listenings. 
Um, so I love Crash and Neil Sinclair, but I also quite like Sinclair User, which isn't very uh, a cool thing to say. Um, and but being a military kid um, at this age, I went to boarding school. And while a lot of kids had a c- computers at home, none of them had them at school. So we we would all buy different magazines and just swap them around. Um, mm. And so we'd read absolutely everything there was. So term time was kind of like for reading about games and bartering with the day kids to get various games copied onto a C90. And then we would, at home, we'd take, the, we'd take them home for the holidays and, and play them all, basically. So magazines were incredibly important growing up. Yeah, it, it, it seems that, uh, you know, you were quite resource heavy being <laughs> getting out of that where some people would just have, you know, the one mag and the, and the one kind of uh, cover disc. Yeah, well, you know, we all, all the, us kids, we talked about games. All, you know, we, we loved all the games. We talked about games constantly. We're all like, you know, when I get home at the end of term, I'm going to play Elite or whatever it is. So yeah, it was mass, massive. It was a bit, almost like a, a community of gamers without actually playing any games. But obviously, we'd go home on the holidays, come back, talk about what we've been playing, swap more games and everything. So um, yeah, it's great. And then later on, I was you know into the I was an ST kid, so you know all the ST mags again, like this Spectrum ones and the sixteen bit mags, like the one and zero. And then I did I did get into PC mags before I actually got a PC. So I bought the first history of PCs own, even though I didn't have any, you know, any kind of machine for it. And, uh, but by that point I was at university. So, you know, I didn't, couldn't really afford buying that many magazines. So uh, that was slightly different. Well, were you writing into any of the mags at all? No, it never really, it's, it's weird. I I was so into these magazines, but it never actually crossed my mind that you could get a job writing for one, really. Um, It was only when I saw um, the ad for, PC's own staff writer, which was in like a lot of media jobs, that was in the, the Guardian newspaper on a Monday. So when was that? So that was not yeah early ninety seven, maybe late ninety six. Can't remember. So what was it? So I saw it and I kind of, you know, I thought, well, wow, I'd love to apply to that job, but I've got no experience. I don't have any qualifications for journalism or English. I barely scraped qualific- English qualification at school. And plus it was paying less than what I was getting, getting at the time anyway. And I'd have to, I was living in London, but I was living on the outskirts. So I'd have to get a tube into London at the cost of fortune. So I was kind of talking myself out of it. But my girlfriend at the time said, you know, go for it. So I did basically. And I figured because I've got no experience, no qualifications, I would need to make some kind of impression. So I created a CV and a, they, what they wanted, they wanted me, to, they wanted people to send in a review. So review favorite game in a thousand words or something sending a covering letter to CV. So I thought I'd smoosh them all together and kind of a, a pa- it was in a PowerPoint document, but it was meant to look like PC's own. It's terrible. I've still got it actually. It looks awful, but it, it obviously did the trick and I, and I went in for an interview. So um, yeah, that was it. And uh, what was the interview process like? <laughs> well, I turned up, I was wearing, I, I didn't know any better. So I turned up in a suit and immediately felt like a massive prick. <laughs> Um, but yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was, I was interviewed by the, uh, so editor Jeremy Wells, deputy editor Chris Anderson and news editor Paul Mallinson. Um, so they were interviewing me and it was a fairly standard interview, I guess. Uh, well, actually, of course it wasn't standard. I mean, you know, questions, it was just talking about games basically. And then they were like, oh, we want you to meet our publisher. So, you know, oh no, that was it. They were sat me down to write a news article and it was for the dark project, you know, that, uh, you know, thief. So um before thief became thief it was kind of known as the dark project and so i, they, I remember writing an article about that in a, in a, a news article 
as a test. And then I had to go see the, uh, the publisher, Tim Ponting. And um, I kind of knocked on his door and um, he just kind of beckoned me in. He was just looking at this CV, this, this PowerPoint thing that printed out, terrible thing. And he just kind of looked at me, looked back at the CV and then um, just said, don't fucking say this. And he just said, you're well, you're obviously not a and that's all he said. <laughs> we, we might have to beat that one. <laughs> we'll beat it, but we'll keep it in. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I actually mentioned this to him a couple of years ago when I was speaking to him, because I have no recollection of that at all. But yeah, it made an impression on me, certainly. So, uh, well, my uh, next question was, uh, what was the culture like at Dennis Publishing? But that probably probably explains it quite well. Yeah, well, I, well I've been... I, no, in the course of, I'm sure we'll get onto the Zone podcast later, but in the course of talking to, the thing is, when I was at Zone, I very much just had my head down and was getting on with things. I, you know, I, I didn't really, there's a lot of things I didn't really notice at the time, but um, talking to people, you know, back in the day about their experiences and stuff, and, and apparently Dennis Publishing was a very kind of, you know, even though it was a successful publishing company, it was very kind of underground, you know, had a bit of a, you know, in the late 70s, had a bit of a, a name for, you know, drugs being stashed in finding cabinets and all this kind of thing. Um, not that I kind of saw much of that when I was there, but so it had this, it did have this kind of culture and it obviously all came down from Felix Dennis, the, um, the owner, as I'm sure a lot of people know, he was, he, he was famous in the sixties for this Oz magazine that he went to prison for, or did he not go to prison that someone else went to prison? I can't remember. But, you know, this kind of counterculture magazine, I can't remember what, what the, uh, well, the charge wasn't that. But anyway, so he was known for that. Um, it was a conspiracy to deprave and corrupt the morales of the young of the realm. <laughs> oh, you've done your research. Nice one. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and, and I guess that, you know, working for him, you kind of, you're, you kind of have this kind of, th- you know, thought of like, oh, this is cool. Felix Dennis, you know, this is cool. This isn't some faceless corporate entity that I'm working for. Um, but even so, within Dennis Publishing, I think the games magazines were kind of second division stuff that I don't think he, he or, or meant a lot of the board really understood games. In, in ve- you know, very much we, it was a case of we, us in the basement, the games crowd in the basement of the building were, were kind of like the, you know, the IT crowd. And um, people would, I think there's, a, I think when they banned smoking in offices in London, they kind of banned it within Dennis Publishing, but they didn't ban it in the basement. So people just used to come down to smoke, basically, which kind of says it all. So, yeah, we were pretty much left to our own devices, which was um, both a good and a bad thing, really. So other magazines at the time, you know, were kind of focusing more on the hardware and the apps and stuff like that. Was it important for PC PC Zone to be a games only? Do you think that really defined the magazine and made it stand out? Yeah, kind of. I, I, I don't think we really knew how to do anything else really. I suppose the weird thing was that, so Dennis had these kind of tech magazines, these computer magazines. So when it came to PC magazines, they only really did the serious kind of business stuff game. It was almost like the games or the anti-games magazine. So it's like computer shopper, PC bro, computer buyer on one side, which are all incredibly successful. I mean, really successful. I mean, they had, you know, 200 pages of ads in them sort of thing. And then there was us on the other side, which was, you know, had no no other content apart from games, just games. So whereas I suppose you had, what were the other mags? So obviously you had PC Format, uh, PC Review, PC Leisure, and they were all kind of like home computing PC magazines. So they covered music and 
graphics and and how to whatever you know clean your hard drive or whatever with a toothbrush. I don't know. Um, so we never covered any of that. So the only and the only time we did do one, we did. I can't remember the year, but we launched PC Gear around the time of the Dream, or was it just after Official Dreamcast? I can't remember. Um, and it just it just completely bombed. I mean, it didn't do anything. So I, I suppose. I think people say Dennis was good at recognising a market and cornering it, but it wasn't so good maybe at muscling on, on other people's territory, so to speak. So I think games is just the only way we were. We kind of had this lineage, I suppose. There wasn't there wasn't never that many big never that many games magazines within Dennis. So I think we were just knew we were a part of this lineage that started with your Sinclair and went through to zero and came through to us. And we were kind of on our own really, if that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, you know those sh- those shopper mags and stuff—they were huge as well, weren't they? They were like uh, encyclopedias every every time you got them. Yeah, I don't know who bought um, them. I mean, yeah, those things were just insane. It was it was my dad, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from dad's, what I remember, yeah, dad's an yeah. IT professional. Um, at, at that time, like CD-ROM titles were really blowing up on the PC, and there was a a whole new scene of like hardware coming out and acceleration and stuff um what titles really caught your eye well not thinking back because I, I didn't i didn't join till 90 did oh, sorry i didn't join zone till 97 so and and by that point cd cds were you know pretty much established um but thinking back to when i got my first pc which is kind of 93 which was when zone started i suppose cd-rom was kind of synonymous with multimedia which when it came to games, was just really superfluous presentation and kind of interactive movies that didn't have much gameplay to begin with. So, and and early CD CDRs were really slow as well. You know, like two, you know, two speed, four speed, and you know, I me- I think I remember a game where I bought this CD, an early game, maybe like Elite Frontier or something, where there was a CD edition. And you know, whereas with the normal floppy edition, you'd be you'd take off and you'd fly off and away. Because this kept loading in these tiny little movies for these kind of characters in the corner of the screen. It just slowed everything up. It was awful. But I guess the benefits for me were kind of less disc swapping and, and having, oh, that was it. Yes, having like a full voice cast. I remember getting really excited by the idea of um, one of those early Star Trek uh, point and click adventures. And and then, then they were going to release one with like the full cast on it, you know, the, you know William Shatner and everyone. And that, 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 I think by that, when that came along, I was, uh, Yep, I'll I'll get one of those, but things like you know Seventh Guest and Mist and Under a Killing Moon, you know, didn't really interest me. I suppose. Would you get many review copies of games, and uh, would you get sent in much kind of hardware and stuff to review at all? Games, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, um, you know, th- these days I suppose you get a lot of everyone has to say whether the game is you know handed to you for free. Yeah. Um, mm. But it back then they all were. Um, you didn't. Mm. You tended not to review it if, it if they didn't send it to you, and if they didn't yeah. send it to you, it's because they didn't want it reviewed. So what would happen is you would you would wait for it to come out and buy it, basically, and then you know on it play, claim it back on expenses. So yeah, we, yeah, we'd get the games usually on a, a burnt CDR on a cheap in a cheap plastic sleeve and a photocopied insert of A4 if you were lucky. Nothing you could take down to computer exchange, you know, for money. But um, but obviously we, you know. You know, couldn't help help but blag the odd game when it came out. You know, and you know, someone would review Quake on a on a CDR, and then as soon as it came out, we'd all phone up phone up the publisher and say, "Excuse me, can you send us ten copies of Quake so we can all play it or whatever?" Well, it wouldn't be Quake, but something else. But yeah, so yeah, um, yeah. And in terms of hardware, 
Yeah, I mean, it was fairly easy to get hardware. We weren't really a hardware mag, though. We, we'd do a roundup now and again. So we'd, we'd, I think we used to get sent hardware. So it'd sit in, sit in a cupboard, basically, until we had 10 of them. And then we'd do a review of 10 joysticks or 10 graphics cards or, or, or modems or whatever it was. And usually they wouldn't ask for them back. So we'd st- they'd stay in the cupboard. And if they didn't, hadn't asked for them back in a couple of months, then we'd just be like, who wants this? Who wants, you know, uh, who wants to yeah. keep that? Whereas these days, I think if you get sent hardware, it's usually, you know, you've got to sign your life away. And if you don't get it back within 30 days, they'll come and take your firstborn or something like that. So <laughs> I do remember I do remember getting a hold of a Sidewinder force feedback joystick to play Free Space, which I still wish I had because that, like, that was the best joystick ever. Um, oh, yeah, they're still great today, those uh, Sidewinder force feedback. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what happened to it. I must have, I don't know what I did with it. Maybe I broke it. But um, yeah, I missed that one. But yeah, hardware wasn't a problem. Three D cards was definitely not a problem because they were coming out all the time. So it would just be a case of they sending in, sending in. You get a new card from somewhere, and someone at the top of the tree would say, "I'll have that one. You can have my old one," and they just get passed down the line, sort of thing. I was wondering how important uh, Duncan McDonald, uh, aka Mister Cursor, was to kind of forging PC Zone's identity. Very, I think. I actually never met the guy. I started. Um, the issue after he kind of mysteriously kind of left, I suppose. To me, he was a bit of an enigma because, I mean, I read his stuff when I was a kid. So, you know, well, not a kid, but, you know, sort of 10, 11, 12 and stuff. And um, so, and to me, his kind of writing kind of represented PC Zone in many ways in the sense that, you know, like Zone grew from Zero and Zero had grown from Yol Sinclair and he'd kind of been a focal point of all of them. Um you know, his writing was often absurd, always funny, I think. And, and while he didn't always take the process of reviewing a game seriously, perhaps, he, I think he took his own writing seriously in that he recognised that he was writing as much to entertain as to um, inform the readers. And so I suppose this was, I guess it's common at the time, but you might end up with a 2,000-word review that only, only, only a few, 500 words is recognisable as a review. But that was kind of still integral to his opinion of the game, I suppose. Um, and it, I think he, he just was constantly, I guess, full of ideas and constantly doing things differently and taking risks and uh, and following through on these mad ideas, which meant those of us that kind of followed could also have these mad ideas and do things without someone shooting it down. Which I, you know, and obviously a lot of us weren't as good at that as, as Duncan was, but, you know, it, that kind of freedom to... Well, creative freedom, I guess, and uh, uh, was a good thing. And Duncan was the first to make the most of it, I suppose. But he wasn't the only one. You know, there was David McCandless, Macca, Mac- Patrick McCarthy, Paul Presley, little-known guy called Charlie Brooker, you might have heard of him, Steve Hill, all these people. Yeah, and it kind of added in the uh, like surrealism and kind of just going into into really obscure areas that you wouldn't, uh, you know, expect to. A PC magazine to go into. Well, and then it just this this mad stuff that I mean, it kind of makes sense now. But when you think back, I mean, I don't. You must have heard. I don't know if you've heard of Kulky, this character Colin Kulk, who was a friend of Duncan McDonald. I think they went to college together, or did A levels together. Um, look it up on look it up on YouTube. Look on look up Kulky goes to EA. These are little videos that that Duncan McDonald would film with this guy called Colin, well, he's not called Colin Carr, he's called Stuart Shafe, but he's, that is his character. And um, they just film this this stuff that wasn't really anything to do with games. 
and it was just them mucking about. But it wasn't, but it was planned out and it was very clever. And they did one where he goes, where this guy, Kolke, goes to EA and um, straps fireworks to his car and just fires them at the office, at EA's office. They were not happy with this. <laughs> um, and it's hilarious. And it's the sort of thing that would, you know, is on YouTube now that people do all the time. But this was just a tiny, grainy video stuck buried on the cover disc, basically, buried on the CD-ROM. And there's a whole series of them. There's one where he's at um, ECTS and he's just walking around talking to developers and doing stupid things like just falling over and people are stepping over him. And it's just nuts, crazy. But this, this is these, these are the ideas they had because Dennis was the way it was and the people in charge were like, oh, you guys just get on with it. We were like, okay, well, we're sticking on the sticking on the CD and no one will care. It's quite funny. We like it and uh, that's it. So, um, yeah, yeah, but definitely look it up. Colky goes to EA. It's, it's hilarious. I'm going to say, I can see a few videos of Mr. Kurt. Cursor and Colkey at the moment. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm going to definitely have to check those out. Um, I was wondering, it, it must have been really good fun then working with uh, kind of, uh, you know, these people around in that environment. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, initially I found it quite intimidating, to be honest. Um, aside from the fact I've been reading magazines produced by these guys since I was at school, everyone was just really, really good at what they did. And I guess, and they expected you to kind of keep up. I remember one of the first news articles I, I was asked to write, you know, I was kind of thinking, oh, I'm in here now. I, I can just write what I want. You know, I'm part of the game. And, and I wrote this news article thinking, oh, this will do the trick. And it just, the news editor, Paul Mallison, just took me aside straight away. And I, it showed me this, he printed it out and just covered it in red, red, you know, copy editing symbols, most of which I've never seen in my life. And I was mortified. But you kind of, you know, they sit you down and they explain and you get better and you, and you be, being amongst all these people, you just kind of lifts you, lifts you a bit. And I think it probably makes you start to think you're equal to them, I suppose, when you're not. But yeah, it, it was always fun. Uh, every day was fun. Uh, too much fun, I suppose. I mean, you'd go in, go through your emails, go through your mail, which, you know, full of games in crappy games and, and discs with screenshots on, and then you maybe play a quick game, write up a preview. A PR guy would turn up at 11, take you out for lunch, a couple of beers, get back, check out the game they brought in, fire off some emails in the afternoon, play some Quake in, you know, for a couple of hours at home time, and then maybe go down the pub. That um, sounds very ideal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, on deadline, I mean, it's, it's quite... People say that we spent two weeks pissing about and two weeks you know, not sleeping and getting the mag done, which is, a, you know, not quite true, but almost true. So, you know, there was less drinking and less gaming on deadline, but, you know, it was pretty much the same thing. You know, it was all just people, you know, who were mates really uh, enjoying their job. And, uh, and and that's what it was. I mean, there was some frustrations, I suppose, but, uh, and I suppose, you know, with the looking back, 20 years you know there's a few things i've forgotten i'm sure but in in my in my memory it was it was just the best time i mean i remember i think i remember what just i don't know i was going from a meeting to something i don't know and i remember standing in a corridor and pinching myself you know just literally i i pinched myself thinking you know it's, am i being paid to do this this job is amazing and mm. and and i and i just and i just walked off again afterwards thinking yep it's real so yeah I'll always remember that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, just the best fun. Absolutely the best. And I think a lot of people who 
looking back through that as well, I mean, I was speaking to Charlie actually a, um, a few months ago, and yeah, he he you know he's he's obviously become very successful, and a lot of people have become very successful um, mm. in the games. It's you know people like Rihanna Pratchett, um, Will Porter, who who was a writer on Alien Isolation, and 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 all these people. Um, you know, a lot of people have gone on to good, you know, amazing things, but they still look back on zone and, you know, and, you know, will it, a lot, most will admit that it was probably the best time, best time in their career in terms of enjoyment. Mm, That's fantastic. That's really great to hear. I was, uh, I was wondering though, how did the, the game scoring, you know, when you actually did get some work done, how did the uh, <laughs> game scoring work? You know, what, what factors and uh, deciders were kind of involved there? Well, I suppose a lot of us were all brought up on those kind of, you know, the standard kind of, you know, gameplay, graphics, sound, mm. you know, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, Zone, I think a lot of magazines at the time. So we had these percentage scores with um, 90 and above was a classic and 88, 80 to 89 was a recommended. And mm. even in the context of it being the 90s, Zone was, I think, I think considered probably quite generous with its scores. That changed in, in, in around '98 when classics. We had uh, editor uh, Chris Anderson took over in about '98, and um, he kind of the whole you know the idea of having a seven classic scores in the, the magazine kind of annoyed him. So he, he we made them quite quite rare. They weren't never never as rare as you know Edge ten out of tens, but um, yeah, you know going down quite a bit. And I think we all took scores fairly seriously. I, I know I did. I put a lot of thought into them. And I, I know there's not much difference between like a 73 and a 74, but there was a huge gulf between an 89 and a 90. And I know people look back on scores now and say it just, it's just a meaningless number, and it is. But you have to remember that back in the early, early days of Zone and, and in the kind of 80s and early 90s amazing, the buyers at Virgin and HMV would base their stocking decisions on what the scores were. Um, in a magazine. So a classic in PC Zone or a game of the month in PC Gamer could make or break a, a title. And we were aware of that, but we were also aware, you know, that we had to be honest to the people that paid our wages, which is the people who bought the magazine. And so even though we made a virtue of pissing about in the magazine, we didn't want to mislead people and have them waste their money, I suppose. Mm. Um, but because of the lead time of working to a print deadline, you know, we might be reviewing a game, you know, not all the games, but, you know, certainly a cover game because obviously you want to be first. So, you know, we might be reviewing a game six weeks before it ended up in a box and it was on the shelf or maybe even longer. So you might have to give it, you know, there's some aspects you might have to give it the benefit of the doubt. And, um, and that is obviously compromising, but there wasn't really any way around that really. So, you know, things like, you know, we'd review, I don't know if we ever did that, but, you know, if you if we were the first with Quake, I think you first were the first with Quake. Um, whether there was any of that review included in any multiplayer, I don't know. You know, things like that, things like crashes, things like weird graphical bugs, you know, these sort of things you'd be, you'd, you'd think, well, that's going to be patched out. I know it's going to be patched out. You know, if you know the, the developer is going to patch it out, you know, if you know it's a it's software or whatever, you know it's going to, going to be gone so you're going to ha- and you know your your review is going to last it's not going to you know it's not on the web it's not on the web it's not going to no one's going there's no way to update it so you know you have to write you know to you know consider it like a, a permanent record so to speak yeah. so um yeah it's just a, a very different way to it to the way it is now i suppose and obviously you, <laughs> and like i said your review was you know three quarters talking about 
I remember I I did a really a Star Wars game. Um, what was it? Jedi Outcast. You know, one mm. of the the Raven ones. And um, the sub at the time, or was it the death? Um, one of the I think the staff right at the time kind of had to go at me because he was saying this is just full of puns and wordplay. It's it's just more it's just more pun than it is review. And I took that as a badge of honour, but obviously I couldn't get away with that today. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, um, I mean, I guess badges of honours, speaking of which, uh, a rather naughty version of Doom made its way onto a CD-ROM cover CD. What's the story there? The, yeah, this is before my time, but I have spoken to Dan Emery, um, okay. um, who was the disc, disc editor. He was responsible. So he was the disc editor at the time. Um, this just came up in one of our podcasts a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, it was a Doom mod, I think, and um, which, you know, our disc editor, Dan, would download... And they'd basically just stuff them on the disc. This was at a time when, you know, any kind of crevice that was left on the on a, on a floppy or a CD-ROM, you'd, you'd just stuff it with Doom stuff because that's all people wanted. And this was at a time when they would appear, I mean, these were just levels, not really, I guess level packs, I suppose, but, the, you know, they, they would appear in their hundreds. There was hundreds of them all the time. And I guess he just didn't really check them all. And I don't suppose he could check them all. And I guess it had boobs in it or what have you. And... uh and um, I don't think it was a big deal at the time. I think by the time it was reported or the, by the time someone complained, we'd probably moved on to a new issue and couldn't do anything about it. So I'm not sure if there was even an apology in the magazine, actually. I'm not sure. Um, it was, yeah, so it was one of the early magazines, so issue 20 or 25 or something like that. Probably the same issue that had the um, famous Frontier Turd in it. I can't remember. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, um, I mean, there was no BBFC rating for mm. cover disc content, so that helped. Mind you, the fact that the BBFC, BBFC did start rating cover mounts a few years later did come about because of us, um, which was yeah. during the time. <laughs> <laughs> Too well, many. You, uh, uh, you, you mentioned there earlier uh, Charlie Brooker, and we had him on the show, and he was uh, very fond of his time at PC Zone. What was it like uh, when he was joining the team, and uh, uh, how did his sick notes go down? We, you know, we mentioned um, uh, getting games and, and taking them down to Computer Exchange. I think that that's basically how how we got connected to the magazine. So, I think a lot of people were aware aware of his stuff, that his comic, you know, his his, uh, his ads that he he would design um, that went into Species Zone and other magazines. So people were aware of that. But he but he worked in the in the Computer Exchange just down the road from the Zone office, and. So I think the free, a lot of the freelancers used to take their games down there um, that they blacked and sell them on just to you know to to augment their income, and they just got speaking to him. And after a while, said you know offered him some you know would he like to try write and write a review, and he kind of agreed. And and uh, and, uh, and and the rest is history. Although when I did speak to him a few months ago, I said how how when I asked him this question, how did you get started? He started talking about his first review was Fallout, and I'm like, hang on, Fallout was '98. You started in '93. How can that? Happen? So um, I'm not sure how how um, how reliable his memory is, but there was basically two types of freelancer. So there was there was the freelancer, you know, the, the occasion you had regular freelancers, but you had some that you kind of never met. Really, they you know they I don't even know where they lived really. So you you maybe see them once every couple of years, you know, for for a bit of a meetup. But and then there were some freelancers that came in, you know, two, three, four times a week, and um, Charlie was one of those. So him, Macca, Steve Hill. Uh, Paul Presley, you know, they were they were in all the time. It was like a you know a clubhouse basically. So you know they would come in, they would come in, and if there was a PR bringing in a game, they would come in. If they were writing the preview, so they'd come in, play it, and take it away, or 
to send some questions off to the developer or something like that. Um, and if they were there, then usually if there's a PR come to demo a game, there's usually that PR will take people off to lunch. So, you know, turn into a bit of a sesh. So it was good. So, you know, if, 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 if one of those guys were coming in, it usually meant there was a bit of, you know, so there was something happening. So yeah, just very social time, very, uh, you know, very good fun. I mean, later on, Charlie was, um, you know, more and more doing his own thing. So, you know, storing less and less. And then, you know, he, he found, he moved on to other things. So, but in terms of Sick Notes, um, so Sick Notes was the back page of the magazine and it was basically a letters page where he would tear into someone, basically, um, take the piss out of them. And I think what it, how it came about was we used to have, so we, every magazine has a letters page and, you know, Zone was no different. And I think a couple of times they got Charlie to, to edit it. So, you know, respond to, you know, some choice questions, basically. And um, he used to take the piss there. So I think we just, and I think when Mr. Cursor moved on, there was, you know, a sense that, you know, Zoning is made is known for its back pages. We need to do something, you know, different, different something that stands out. And I think it was just a case of let's get Charlie to answer the very worst letters from people in the very worst way. And um, yeah, so it was, yeah, it was basically a letters page where he just let rip on people. And I, I'm not. And it was interesting uh, the letters page because I think at some point they were rivaling, putting up people against each other and stuff, and that kind of user interaction must have really like you know helped PC Zone and uh, help. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people loved sick notes. Um, and I and how many of those letters I, he made up? I don't. He probably made up the last ones because I think he <laughs> people were tend did tend to ask the same things. They wrote in when they knew about it. They would wrote in in order to be abused. But, you know, I think Charlie being Charlie, he was a case of I can write these abusive letters better myself. So he would respond. I think a few times he would respond to his own letters uh, that he'd made up. But in terms, I, I think Zone was, yeah, I'm not sure how this kind of evolved. But I mean, you know, I think in the beginning, Zone had its letters page. It had its tech letters page. And when we had the big redesign in 98, we kind of, we brought in a, um, what was it? So the tech letters page became Dear Wandy. Um, Phil Wandy used to answer them. And then we had a cheat master. Did that have letters? I'm not sure. We had a watchdog theme, which was like a consumer letters page, kind of like Anne Robinson nonsense. And then we also had reader reviews as well for a while. So these feedback pages where we'd, you know, people could write their own mini reviews. And I, we also had pages where people could, I would go to a tap, you know, with someone would go off to Birmingham or, wherever and, and and go into a shop and then ask people what they're playing basically so there's that as well so okay i guess there was no single page that was that important but together i suppose inadvertently we'd kind of created this kind of you know we had we had i don't know maybe eight nine ten pages of feedback in various type parts of the magazine and then i think later on they kind of brought in comments from the forum as well and that kind of kicked off so yeah there was a lot of reader interaction but it and i suppose taken together it was it was quite quite meaningful but we didn't really think about that at the time one of the things dennis had and i'm not sure why but we all had our phone numbers in the magazine like our personal number our, well yeah our work number and so i guess we kind of made ourselves quite accessible even though we didn't get that many phone calls We'd, we'd usually get around 3.30 on a weekday after school, you know, kids phoning up saying, can I speak to Mecca? Can I speak to Charlie? So, you know, that that was basically it. But it, I suppose having your phone number in the magazine kind of makes people think, oh, these guys are accessible. Or, you know, I'll, I'll 
but you know, we, I guess, and we wanted to get across the idea that you know we're, you know, we're, we're all mates here, and you know, we're all mates with you, I suppose. So, and I suppose that kind of helped feed into that, although in a way it was kind of inadvertent, I think. It very much like you mentioned earlier about you know the kind of the videos and stuff. It, it had that kind of pranking vibe as well, uh, with you know like. Um, Charlie ringing up different companies, uh, <laughs> pretending to be different characters and stuff, and kind of that was brilliant. Yeah, maybe a digitizer vibe or, or kind of you know a, a t- taking the Michael kind of vibe. I, I really like that. Yeah, I mean that that I don't know what. Well, I guess that was his idea. Just yeah, the, the idea where he played these various characters and phoned them, phoned up these helplines to say you know I can't get this game to work and stuff. Yeah, I guess that was kind of you know preempting a lot of the stuff he would end up doing. Um, uh, I, I've, I have, I have a quite a good memory of it. I'm, I'm fairly. I think he got drunk to do it. Um, he sat in the publisher's office on the phone for a couple of hours, and it was all being recorded and everything. And the rest of us were just getting on with our work. But uh, yeah, I think Mallow, Paul Manderson said, "Oh, Charlie was pissed doing it. He couldn't do it without being drunk." Which I, I find quite funny because I think of him needing to get drunk in order to make a phone call when he's on the TV <laughs> all the time. Or, um, it's quite funny, but he he maintains that he wasn't drunk. But um, no, I, I'm sure I saw a few bottles in there. Well, we can't um, we can't go ahead without mentioning the uh, Lara Croft cruelty zoo, and um, that was a sketch in the magazine. I, th- I think it led to the issue actually getting withdrawn from uh, Smiths. Um, w- w- what was that like at the time? So this, yeah, so this was this, the, the comic strip was satirizing Tomb Raider, wasn't it? And and uh, it, yeah, he photoshopped these kids from the Argos catalogue to make them look like they're chainsawing chim- orangutans. That was it. Um, it's actually quite graphic, that. And um, I'm not sure if I just took offence or it was the editor who said they would take offence and the page had to be changed. And But I, I think it was more... I don't know if the page went out. I think I don't know if subscriber copies went out, so there are a few sh- issues with it in. And then it was changed or it was obviously changed very last minute, which is very expensive. But then it was pulled again afterwards, wasn't it? Who was it? it was- I think it was WH Smith. No, I think it was, well, I think initially it was the RSPCA. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what I was told. Um, that who, who mentioned that? I think it was John Davison. So he was the publisher at the time. And um, yeah, he said the RSPCA complained. So yeah, then it got pulled. So it got pulled on the basis of, you know, the blood and the violence rather than the, the Tomb Raider. Um Aspect, so I guess we'll never know. I don't know if anyone said to Idas afterwards that you know to say had it gone forward, would you have complained? But it, it, it's moot now because obviously whether it was Idos, whether it was Team Raider, or whether it was Hermit Wester, or his name is, it doesn't matter. It would have got pulled either way. It's just a shame. It you know, it's just a shame the joke was utterly lost by that. Point. Yeah, I think it was kind of uh, on the point that you know Lara goes around and basically massacres all of these animals yeah. in, uh, in all of the games. Yeah. Oh yeah, it, it, yeah, it was just great, and I think a, a lot of his—if he goes through a lot of Charlie's stuff, you know, his cyber twat stuff, and um, and a lot of the kind of pages that he, the the comic book pages that he did, very much were, you know, in a vein of what he would go on to do. Um, and sometimes they were weren't tied to games at all; they were just you know, rip-offs of these catalogs you would get, you know, these kind of JML stuff that is advertised on TV. What was I remember one? There was an alarm, an advert from an alarm clock that would wake up and smash you on the head with a hammer and it was just obviously this very violent picture which obviously again came from the Argos catalogue of someone being hit with a hammer in in bed you know and blood everywhere <laughs> nothing to do with games at all 
Brilliant. But, you know, again, that was just another thing where, you know, if someone had an idea and we found it funny, then, okay, yeah, we'll do that. We didn't, I, uh, we didn't really have anyone telling us to stop doing it. I've worked on magazines where the publisher, who's the step above, step above the editor, is in your face all the time. Every day you're talking about what's in the magazine. You have to justify everything. Whereas the, public, the publisher on PC Zone, their job was to shield us. So if, if ever someone high, uh, up above, you know, some of the director had a problem with something, it would, they'd go to the publisher and talk to the publisher. We never heard anything about it. So as far as we were concerned, we, you know, we, were, allowed, we were allowed to do this stuff. There was only a couple of times when we, you know, we heard that something didn't go down very well. And usually it was something like that. You know, something got pulled. Mm. Came down to money, basically. If, if if Felix Dennis had to pay fifty grand because to reprint the magazine because of this page, then you know, definitely heard about that. So uh, PC Zone was very male in its readership. I think uh, there was a survey done, and it was like only two percent of the readers were female. Were there any attempts to kind of attract more of a female audience at the time? Yeah, I suppose there was. I don't. Th- was it two percent? Was it really that low? Gosh, I, I read that somewhere online, but it could have been could have been an accurate or a certain period of time. But, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if it was ever that low, but yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it was mostly guys. I mean, it's we we were we were all guys. We were writing for our kind, I guess. Yeah, and we were aware of it. And there were some really cack-handed attempts to attract more girls. I remember one was a feature, quite embarrassing now, on how to get your girlfriend into games, <laughs> which utterly missed the point what was it it was basically various girlfriends of people on the team and we dressed them up in black dresses and put them on a pink sofa and it was awful um and uh <laughs> yeah totally missed the point um i mean the obvious way to get more female readers was to have more female writers and i don't think the penny dropped on that until we got rihanna pratchett on the team which is yeah a bit sad really but i mean the, the weird weirdly before zone um, so on Zero, if you look at, you know, uh, you go through an issue of Zero magazine, the 16-bit mag precursor was like, and there's, you know, there's a lot of girls on the team. So, you know, like Maya Lopez and obviously Teresa Morn, who was, you know, she, you know PC Zone, she was the one who came up with the idea for PC Zone. And we had a lot of um, uh, women kind of on the production side. You know, they were the ones who would go through the copy and say, we get a roll of the eyes and saying, you guys, you can't do this. This is awful. <laughs> you know, so that would happen occasionally. But yeah, it, the only way to, to to change that was to have more girls on the team. And it never really crossed our mind until a girl, you know, <laughs> applied for a job and we're like, oh yeah, we should take her. She's great. And then, and then, yeah, they, like I say, then the penny dropped. And then after that, there was Susie, uh, Susie Wallace came, came on the team. And I suppose it all changed after that but yeah yeah it was all guys and and that was a bit unfortunate really well recently you had a, a pc zone anniversary as well the 30th what was it kind of like getting everybody back together and you know sharing yeah. the tales lovely it was lovely actually um you know loads of people who hadn't seen for 20 years um some that i have and some that you know some people who stayed you know a lot of us stay in contact i guess we've had we've had the odd reunion every two three years maybe we'd go for you know a couple of beers and a curry uh, but obviously we're all over the place now we've all got kids and stuff so yeah it was lovely but it was also nice to see people who were kind of in the background like i said earlier you know i had my always had my head in a monitor most of the time so I missed a lot of things but the you know there was people who was um there was this work experience kid who who manned the telephone tips line 
who I vaguely remember being around. He's now some HR director and, you know, he still looks about 12, but, you know, it's great to see him. People who were, who did ads who, you know, I barely spoke to at the time. Although I do feel a bit bad nagging Charlie Brooker to come because we had a screen cycling through old photos um, in the background. One of him was was of him <laughs> trousers down sitting on a dinner plate Um <laughs> which uh, we had in the magazine eating his own ass. Oh, I've seen that yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> and that was like on a massive screen in this bar. And um, he didn't, yeah, he wasn't playing. He gave me the stink eye when he saw that. And uh, especially he was kind of cycling on the screen every 10 minutes. Uh, I keep meaning to take it down, but I never got around to it. So um, yeah, it was nice. It was, it, there was a, a, quite a lot of people I wish could have gone, but at the same time, I didn't have time to speak to everyone that was there anyway. So um, yeah, it was great. night. brilliant. Loved it. So uh, tell us about the PC Zone Lives podcast. Uh, Lives podcast. PC Zone Lives. Redo that. I'll redo that. I'll redo that. No, no, no. It works as both. It works as both. We said this to begin with. Oh, is it PC Zone Lives or Lives? And I say, well, it's PC Zone Lives. And then we did an episode. I did an episode a few weeks ago with one person. And I thought it probably works better as PC Zone Lives because most of the uh, episodes are focused on one particular issue. Um, so, you know, we've done issue 19, which is like the VR issue, like the early VR headset. So we were talking about VR, early VR. We've done the issue that was the Half-Life 2 issue where we, um, stuck it up PC Gamer. Um, and we've, you know, we, we talked about various issues, but, the, but this one issue, uh, the, sorry, this one episode was with Vicky McDonald's, um, Dolka McDonald's sister talking about her career rather than one issue. Cause people who, who, you know, people who, who are designers or production staff, um, or artists, they don't really think about single issues. You know, to us who are gamers, we like, oh yeah, remember that issue? It was a great issue. Whereas people who design is like, I don't know idea. You, so it was good to just speak to her generally and speak about her career. And she, I mean, like she was, um, she was a smash hits journalist and then she kind of was bored with writing. So, and she, uh, and so she kind of became a designer um, and obviously talking and she worked on zone as it, you know, in the early days, along with along with her brother, and um, she was responsible for the big readers. We had a massive redesign, relaunch of the magazine in '98, and she was responsible for that. So, you know, she was you know she's part of Easy Zone history. So, yes, yeah, sorry, <laughs> lives and lips does work. That was a terror. What was the original question? <laughs> oh yeah, how's it, how did it come about? So, how did it come about? Tell yeah. us about so, it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so so what it was actually. So ever since Zone closed. There's always, we've always sort of, whenever we've seen each other, we've, we've always been like, oh, we should do something. We should get together. We should do a blog or something. And so we, you know, we have a couple of beers and think we should do this. We should do that. And then it seems like a good idea. And then obviously we all wake up the next day with a bit of a hangover and think that's never going to happen. Um, and then during lockdown, obviously we couldn't meet up. We couldn't have a bit of a reunion. So we, we just got jumped onto Zoom and we were, all, we were all sober and we were just saying we should do something. We should do something. And Steve Hill, um, turned around and said, well, we should just record this and put it out there. I thought about it and thought, actually, that sounds fairly easy. I've never done a podcast before, so, but it sounds fairly easy. It shouldn't be a problem. Let's make it, let's let's get five people, talk about an issue, and I'm sure, I'm sure editing won't be a problem at all. And also at the same time, we just heard of, there was, a, I think a couple of months later, we'd heard about Duncan who died. He died a few years before, but no one, you know, we hadn't really heard about it because no one, no one had kept in contact with him. And a couple of other people on the team were kind of, you know, a couple, there was a couple of heart attacks, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we're all in our, even the youngest people on Zone are now in their 40s. So they, 
um, you know, we're all getting on a bit. So the thought of people kicking the bucket and um, and wanting to do something, and then I, I thought about it. I listened to um, um, you know the Maximum Power Up podcast and all the and all the episodes that Paul did with various people in the, working in magazines. And I thought, no, no, this this is brilliant. Great podcast, that great is. Po- podcast. Wish he was still doing it. But you, you guys do a fine job with like this as well, so that's fine. Um, so, and yes, and I thought, well, no, I could do this. I could do this. It, and I, 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 I kind of think back and think the the whole having five people t- thinking back to a specific time twenty five years ago is probably a bit difficult. So it's quite hard to get people together at the same time. It's get it's quite hard to get people to remember that kind of very specific period. But um, yeah, it's great fun. Um, you know. I, I doubt we'll ever make hundreds of episodes like you guys, but if we can get to 30 or 40, that'd be quite nice, you know? So yeah, it's good. Fun. Well, we re- recommend it for everyone. And you're also working on uh, MCV as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. MCV is, um, industry magazine. So it's very, so it started in 98. I remember actually when I was on zone, cause it, I remember the first issue came into the office and yeah, it's an industry magazine. It's basically about retail. It's about, well, it was about retail, about manufacturing, about marketing. So we used to get it in the office and we'd know what was being released that week, and what company was pressing discs and what company was printing manuals and what kind of stuff. Pretty tedious, I suppose, but it's still going. And um, I think I, yeah, so I've been there a couple of years. It's a very different magazine now, though, because obviously it used, used to be weekly and now it's monthly and it's combined with develop. So it's MCB develop and there used to be a develop magazine, which is basically about the industry. That was about recruitment. That was about graphics routines and, and yeah, that kind of stuff and games that are coming out and uh, building teams and using engines and various other middleware and co-development, all that kind of stuff. So now they're kind of smooshed together and, but it's quite a small magazine. So it's quite difficult to cover everything that's going. And in fact, we don't even try actually we just try and do a bit of kind of a best of thing but it's good it's 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 got a bit of history and um you know i you know i get it's you know it's quite easy to get hold of developers to interview them and and stuff like that because it's kind of there's only one of these there's only mcb left sort of thing it's kind of like the you know the print version of gamesindustry.biz but with less news i suppose um and it's um it's free which is you know you it's there's a free, you can, the digital version is free. You know, you don't have to pay for it. And the people, and it, actually the people who get it, the print version, don't have to pay for it. But you have to be a member of the games industry. You have to be like a manager or you have to be a, you know, a lead designer or a lead graphics guy or a recruiter or something like that or PR or marketing. So, yeah, it's free to those people. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, I think we send about 5,000 copies out. I'm not sure. Something like that. So it's very much UK focused as well. So UK games industry um, focus, which is up to about, is about 30,000 people working in UK games industry. I'm not sure. Something like that. Well, if uh, any, any of you folks are listening and you want to get a copy, check out uh, mcvuk.com as well. And uh, check out the uh, PC Zone lives or lives um, <laughs> podcast as well because that's absolutely fantastic well richie it's been uh, awesome having you on the podcast oh no it's been great fun thank you for having me i am absolutely honored